Hello, I'm Jason. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're going to talk about the vehicle routing problem and especially looking at electric vehicles. So what is the vehicle routing problem and how does it apply to us? I think this is a really interesting case where people have a very good handle on how to, you know, read maps, discover routes when they're driving around. Um, but actually, it, the problem doesn't need to get that much harder before it becomes really hard. It's where you have not just one vehicle, or one van or whatever it is you're making deliveries on, but you've got multiple vehicles. Okay. So I had it in my head that this was something about routing my vehicle. And I'm thinking immediately of when I go on holiday and I may have a car rental and I want a road trip and see all of the sites. So I have to get out the map at the back of my um, tourist guidebook and pick out the sites I want to see in a certain day and choose the order that I want to go to those sites because I have a certain amount of time in the day. Um, maybe the weather's going to turn, so I decide I want to go to the beach in the morning and the museum in the afternoon. And I'm trying to come up with just as one person in one vehicle and one linear trip, what's my best route? And of course I'm on my holidays so I want to factor in my lunch or my dinner or getting back for the happy hour at the hotel. So those are my kind of constraints. You've talked here about um, multiple vehicles or multiple um, options on that route. Yeah, so what you described is, is a very good version of a related problem which is called the travelling salesman problem. So imagine you weren't on holiday, but you were actually a salesman. Yeah, and a business holiday. A business, yes. <laughs> and, and, and this actually happened. I mean, there's these lovely stories of traveling salesmen going around the United States. They would be sent out from their depot or place of work at the beginning of the season, and they would, they would travel you know, uh, thousands of miles sometimes around several states and they would write home, they would write back to their office to say, why have you sent me this way? Why have you sent me from McGuckin's to uh, Smith's Industries when, when obviously it would be better if I went the other way? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's been a problem for, for that long. So what you described is the travelling salesman problem. It's, it's a one-person problem if they were in one vehicle. And, and what the vehicle routing problem is, is, is many vehicles. It's where you've suddenly not got just one person doing the deliveries you've got you've got a whole fleet of vehicles and a whole workforce of people who are going to drive them okay so you've highlighted immediately that this will have applicability to deliveries so our immediate kind of case study is deliveries of whatever it might be parcels we're going to say yeah it could be deliveries it could be engineering maintenance visits it could be uh yeah anything that requires a visit to a location for some purpose but yeah deliveries typically this is hot in the in the logistics uh deliveries industry right now this is this is something which is is being investigated and researched and is is very relevant because if you can get this right then especially when you were previously doing a manual version of this you were maybe sitting down with a spreadsheet and working out a good route for your 10 vehicles or your 20 vehicles out of your depot if you can if you can put in place a good algorithm to do this then suddenly you you're looking at saving 
big time, 20% of the distance travelled maybe. Okay, so there's some savings to be made because I'm going to make errors and have overlaps in my multiple vehicles where one of them was passing a point, so another one didn't need to go to that point. And that's distance that's been lost, and as a result, cost that's been lost against the fuel and the time for that resource. There's many things that you might save as a result of doing this, and it rather depends what your focus is on. So a, a, a lot of people focused on um, producing less greenhouse gases, less emissions because of the fuel that they're, they're burning. A lot, good. a lot of these vehicles, of course, still burn you know, diesel. So, uh, so that's, that's a, big, a big cost driver and a big environmental cost driver as well. So there's obviously a, a saving to be made if you can save on the total amount of driven distance. Yeah. But then also, you know, you, may want, you might want to be being nice to your employees. You might want to be having them not, not drive um, six hours a day. You might want to be trying to minimize the amount of time that, you're, um, that they're driving um, on the road so you can give them an extra break or something like that. So. Oh, of course. And if we're thinking of it from the people who are doing the driving, then if they have to take a break at a certain time, that break probably has to happen in a certain location as well, because that's a rest stop. Exactly. So that becomes an extra constraint in the, in, in the process. Your, your, your yeah. nice example of having to factor in the beach visit because that's when the weather was nice. That, that translates very nicely into um, I've got to have a break now because I've been on the road for three and a half hours and it, you know, I'm getting tired or maybe it's legally required that I have a break at that point. Okay, so we're seeing how much this is immediately becoming a problem with all of these constraints. How difficult is this problem? The problems are, as I said, hard and they get hard very quickly. So even if you only have, just, just let's pair it back to the one vehicle an example. You had the one person going on, um, going around a, a set of customer locations, say. They only have to have 61 locations in their, in their itinerary um, before the number of combinations to how they visit those locations exceeds the numbers of atoms in the universe. What numbers are we talking about here? The number of ways that you can visit 61 locations is, is basically the number of ways that you can permute um, 61 characters in a string. So, so we can say we can call that 61 factorial and that's a big number. That's, that's 5 times 10 to the 83 possible combinations. It's, it's huge. Wow. And I think I think the number of atoms in the universe at the top end is something like one times ten to the eighty-two. It's 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 so it's we're talking big numbers here, and that's just one vehicle, and then then you add ten vehicles or twenty vehicles or thirty vehicles, and you have not just or put an order of magnitude on the problem. You've put ten, twenty orders of magnitude on the size of the problem. So you've just multiplied your problem by ten to the twenty or something like that. It's it's yeah. it's, it's it's a huge. A hugely complex problem if you are thinking about searching every single possible solution. Yeah, and I was just thinking that a lot of those solutions probably look very alike if that's how many there is. With a solution space, as we would call it, that big, there are lots of solutions which are very similar, but then there are also a huge number of solutions which you, you, you glance at and you go, that's ridiculous, I'd never drive that. That's, that's a, a hopeless solution, but it still counts as a possible solution. It's just a very poor quality one. And when you talked about the greenhouse emissions, we're specifically thinking now of electric vehicles. Yeah, so this is something that has been on the agenda for 
a while, but hasn't I haven't seen it properly addressed in in the literature until relatively recently. When you uh, have an electric vehicle, it adds an extra level of decision making process into the into the set into the setup. So. I'm lucky enough to have an electric vehicle. I know from personal experience that if you're making a long journey, you've got to make some decisions. You've got to decide where am I going to stop to charge the car? And there are lots of possible options. The the number of charge points in the UK now exceeds the number of petrol stations. So there really is quite a lot of choice. That's amazing. Yeah, it's not bad actually. So that's the number of charge points, but how does that compare to the number of pumps at the locations of a petrol station? You're absolutely right. So the number of petrol stations in the UK is somewhere around 8,000, 8,300, something like that. Um, but the number of locations where there are charge points, ability to charge an electric vehicle is somewhere in, in the excess of 11,000. So the number of locations is, is doing better, but you're absolutely right. The number of pumps at a typical petrol station is about, I don't know, six or eight or something, whereas typically at a, a, a charge point, you might only find a, a couple of sockets to, to, to plug into. So that's got to improve a little bit, maybe. Okay, but that means the trend is certainly quickly going in favour of charge points by the sounds of it. Yes, there will very, very soon be more charge points sockets than petrol pumps um, in the UK and I'm sure that's true in in other parts of the world. I think it already is true in Norway for instance. The deal here though is that when you've got that much choice it it actually adds the complexity as far as as far as how you decide what your route looks like because now I could stop for a charge if I'm in an electric vehicle maybe I don't need a charge until I've gone 150 miles uh, but I could stop for a charge before that, that comes up so now I've got to decide, do I stop for a charge after, you know, parcel drop number 32, or do I stop after 33, or maybe I hold out until parcel drop 43, when I might be quite low in my battery and, and it might be getting a bit touch and go as to whether I'm going to make it. Cool. And you had an interview with Marve Keskin at the Warwick Business School. Let's hear what they told us about this problem. I'm joined today at the Isaac Newton Institute by... Marve Keskin, who's a knowledge transfer partner associate at the Warwick Business School. And she's uh, currently on secondment to Slicker Recycling, where she's applying vehicle routing optimizations to their recycling problems, which is really exciting, I think. So Marve, uh, can you just give us a, a sort of potted summary then of what vehicle routing optimization is? Yes, actually it is basically planning the vehicles, vehicles' routes uh, such that their total distance travelled or their total time travelled or any other measure is minimised. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, total distance is trying to be minimised. Mm-hmm. Basically, we have a depot. Uh, the vehicle departs from the depot, visits a set of customers and then returns to the depot. Uh, we are trying to find the best set of customers such that the total distance the vehicle travels is minimized. Mm-hmm. So it's an optimization problem, combinatorial optimization problem. You've got to move the possible customer lo- customer stops around. You can't mm-hmm. move the customers around, but you can you can choose which order you go to the customers in, can't yes. you? And they have multiple vehicles, I assume? 
Um, it can be, yeah, there can be multiple vehicles, there can be only one vehicle, okay. which then it will be a traveling salesman problem. Right, right. We, we can have multiple depots as well. For instance, the vehicle may depart from one depot and it can end up with another depot. Right. The, the demands may be uh, stochastic. So when you say that, that, that means it, there's an uncertain amount of, uh, of volume that's taken or dropped off at a particular location or, or there's an uncertain time of arrival or what? Um, actually, it can be both. Right. Um, the travel time can be uncertain. Yes, because of, of traffic jam yeah. or accidents, etc. Uh, the demand can be uncertain. For instance, uh, when the vehicle is traveling, a customer pops and requests a collection or delivery. While the vehicle's already en route, while it's yes. after it's left its depot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, then the decision is whether to cover that customer or not. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the demand itself can change. For instance, in our case, in recycling company, when the customers call the company, they say, for instance, we have 1,000 liters of waste oil to be collected. Mm. However, they, they don't know exactly what amount of oil they have because they don't have a sensor or something like that in their no. oil tanks. I see. So it may be less than 1,000 or more than 1,000. In that case, we don't know exactly uh, the planned route will be ex can be executed or not. Right, yes, I see. So it might be that you turn up and they've got too much oil for you for that, uh, that vehicle yes. in terms of what's left of its tank. And I was particularly um, interested in um, some of the papers that you've written uh, recently um, because they moved the vehicle routing problem into the world of electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. And I found myself in a situation where I'm driving, driving my uh, electric car up, up, up the motorway and the battery's getting quite low and uh, maybe I've had to turn the heating off yeah. because <laughs> uh, I'm de desperate to find eke that extra mile out. Um, and and I've, I've got to the, uh, the recharge station and it's not working. And, exactly. Uh, and so I think this is a really, exci <laughs> a really exciting area because tr trying to factor in that kind of thing into vehicle routing optimization in a, in a methodological way, I think is so important. Particularly in the EV routing problem, unlike the classical routing, we have the battery case. In the classical problem, the driver wouldn't be bothered because it takes five minutes to refill the tank. But uh, in the recharging case, it can take up to hours mm -hmm. depending on the uh, charger mm -hmm. and the size of the battery and yes yeah the amount of charge you need also yes so in our first paper we we considered the battery is recharged up to any level because in the previous studies they were assuming that it is recharged up to the full capacity just for simplicity yeah yeah this is important because customers may have time windows to catch. Yeah. So if we stop at a charging station and recharge hours and hours, mm. then we may lose some customers. Mm. So you've got to take that into account on the route, basically. Yes. If you've got a, a commitment to be at another customer at two o'clock, 
you can probably only allow I don't know, half an hour or 40 minutes or something maybe for a charge at, yes. at 12 o'clock. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some customers may may say, okay, it's, it's okay for me to arrive later than like at any time, but yeah. some customers may penalize late arrivals or some may even do not allow late arrivals. So Maybe they're shut. Yes. If it's a commercial customer. Yes. So yeah. time is important. Absolutely. That's why uh, we need to take these into account. And it was particularly interesting in your papers that, that you, you developed this, this theme. So you weren't just looking at electric vehicles, you were looking at electric vehicles and um, you were looking at the recharging cost of, of, of those vehicles over a particular route maybe. So yes. um, again, something I learned learned quite early on uh, was that different recharging networks and posts have a different level of charge some some charge by the minute some mm-hmm. charge by the uh, by the uh, unit of electricity uh, some don't charge at all but they charge for the car parking so it's a fixed cost yes so not easy for someone to do a sort of quick on the fly calculation of what the the quickest or the most che- the, the cheapest mm-hmm. um, route might be i'd think so how did that differ what, what, what how were you having to take that into account and what did you do to do that in that study, the objective was minimizing the total cost, right. uh, total cost of energy recharged. Uh, in that case, we assumed that uh, recharging the battery with a slow charger is the cheapest option. With a slightly faster charger, it is slightly more expensive. And if you want to charge it uh, quickly, it is the most expensive one. So again, ta- because the time is important, sometimes we may just want to pay whatever it costs yeah. and catch the next customer. But sometimes customers are not bothered very much about the time. So we are just going and uh, charging with the slow charger. Yes, yes. So it really depends on the customer topology. So you were taking into account the time constraints the customer had as well. Yes. And then you're saying what's feasible, and then once I know what's feasible, what's minimizing my cost across that? Yes. The final paper I looked at also rang true, which was when you turn up to a charging um, location and there's maybe only two chargers there, and there's a queue, mm-hmm. and, and there's, more than a, there's more than one car uh, waiting, and you're at the back of the queue, so you've not now got to wait for one or two cars, hopefully not more than that, to, to go through their charging session mm-hmm. before you can get to the, to, to the front. Can you describe a little bit about how you did that? Yes. Um, to model that situation, we firstly assume that we roughly know uh, the queue structures of the chargers. Oh, right. Um, so we assume that we know the, the arrival rates of the vehicles to the chargers, right. which may not be practical. Obviously, we know the charging rate, but at the same time, we don't know in reality how much uh, energy the, the car in the queue will recharge. So we, um, yeah, to simplify, we did... A couple of assumptions so we assume that on average a car will recharge 55 percent of the full capacity mm-hmm. but th- there was an assumption yes uh, and there was an assumption also on the arrival rate of the vehicles so that we can approximately 
estimate the average waiting time yeah, if yeah. we go to that station. Sure, sure. And again, because time is important, um, sometimes we may not want to go that busy station, but we, we may want to go a little bit further station yeah. with shorter queue. So there's a trade-off between waiting time and the traveling time here. I see. So it could be that you turn up to a, to a charging station, you see there's a queue, and then you decide just to turn around and go to the next one if you have battery to do that. Actually, this was not the case. If you go to the station, you have to wait. Ah, okay, right. Yeah. Right. It may be a future study. <laughs> I see. Okay, okay, okay. But you're taking it into account anyway. And then in that paper, it said it used a you were using a, a math heuristic approach, um, which is a combination of the meta heuristic, uh, adaptive large neighborhood search, and and, and, a, and an ILP um, solution. Do you want to give us a little bit of flavor of, of, of how, which bits you were solving with the precise technique and which mm -hmm. bits you were using the heuristic for? Um, the materialistic uh, approach was used in the second paper, actually. I see. Oh, I see. Uh, we first modeled the problem as a mixed integer mathematical problem. Mm -hmm. First, we decided the whole solution. Let's say we have 10 vehicles to plan. Um, the adaptive large neighborhood search determines the solution of these 10 vehicles. Right. Say we have 100 customers to cover. Actually, 10 is not fixed. It is determined by the yes. solution. Yes, yes. Uh, because the number of vehicles is also in the objective function. Right. We try to minimize it. Okay. For an individual route, we gave the mathematical model to CPLEX mm -hmm. to optimize the points where the recharging stations will be visited. Mm -hmm how much the battery will be recharged and which charger will be selected, the slow one, normal one or the fastest one. Okay, so the, the, the local decision making was handed to CPLEX, which is a, a standard industry standard optimizer. Yes, yeah. since because it is sold for each vehicle individually, it was sold in a quite short amount yes, of time. Yes, that's a quick. Whereas the whole solution is handled by the ALNS which is a meta heuristic and it was already fast. Fantastic. Did you have a, a total objective for um, how many uh, locations you could run your model over? No, I haven't tried, unfortunately, because the instances are up to 100 customers, the instance in the literature. Okay. Not the real life instances unfortunately so 100 customers is where the literature is at right now yes okay that's really mm -hmm. interesting Malfi, thank you so much thank you very much thank you this sounds like the scale is really going to become a problem if we roll this out in any given scenario exactly i mean the extra complexity we're talking about here is really significant and that's on top of the the complexity that was already inherent in the problem uh, with these multiple vehicles, multiple drops. We've now got uh, uh, the battery to look after in terms of uh, a model of the battery and how, how much it's uh, charged or, or not as, as we're progressing around the journey. We've got the locations of the possible charge points. We've got different charging models. We've got queues at the charge station. I mean, there's, there's a lot to take into account. So very quickly, you've got um, a problem which becomes very hard to solve. And I think what uh, Marve said 
you know, was that she was able to do 100 possible drop points with her, her combination of approaches. I think that's really impressive. And if we're going to scale this or at least explore these solutions, what kind of algorithmic approaches would we look at at the moment or what's on the horizon? So with this optimization problems, you typically have two or three choices, broadly two choices. You've got the first, which is to construct a mathematical program, it's called. So it's a particular style of description of the underlying optimization problem. So in this case, it'll be something we we call a mixed integer linear program. It's a bit of a mouthful, but but that describes the type of optimization that's going on to capture all of those facets, all of those constraints, and the objective that we're trying to um, optimize towards. And the the good thing about that is when you have described your problem in that way, you have a really solid understanding of what the problem is and a perfect description of uh, and representation of that problem. But the downside is it's really hard to solve those linear programs. Um, you can throw them at some really high quality industrial scale solvers, but once the problem gets so big, they will struggle to mm-hmm. uh, give you a solution for, for large problems, probably not even as high as 100. Probably they would have struggled for, for, for smaller problems than that. I always find this really interesting because we're talking about integer linear programming and it sounds intuitively like a way to make this easier because you're somehow (laughs) discretizing the problem and that's the integer part of it and yet the complexity is still what makes this so difficult to then scale the integer element of this if the solutions represented by different integer values in your problem were nicely linked together that you could anticipate that if I move, you know, hand wavy a little to the left in my solution space, then it would be a little bit better. And if I move a little bit to the right, it'll be a little bit worse. If I've got that kind of property, if I know what the the shape of my problem looks like, then I can employ quite some some quite clever techniques in um, optimization design to to enable me to move in the right direction and solve my problem or get to a good solution quite quickly. However, the integer element can also bite you quite badly because sometimes there isn't a good relationship between uh, solutions that are, in some senses, next to each other. And in that, and, and in that situation, you might go, okay, well, what happens if I swap two uh, delivery stops around, or what happens if I charge at a different uh, charge point that's that's one mile down the road, and the solution completely radically changes? And you've got a much worse or maybe even a much better solution, but you had no anticipation before having done all of that work to test it that that would be the case. Yeah, and that's exactly where the idea of similar solutions comes in. That You don't know how similar a solution is just by one small change. Like when you say swap two charging points, that could have a huge effect, but we don't know it until we look at it. And that's that discrete jump in your solution space, right? Exactly. So one of the ways around this problem of trying to solve quite a hard mathematical problem at scale is to employ something called heuristics. I think I've used these a little bit. So we want to make some assumption initially about a first pass of the solution. 
and then build from that. Precisely. So a heuristic, the best way of describing heuristic is, heuristic is that it's sort of an educated guess, initially anyway, and then you employ some continued intuition about how you think the problem could be made better by encoding that intuition in a rule and coding that rule up and then and then using that to transform your initially educated guess into something which actually becomes quite good. Yeah. So you're moving away from random. So your random guess is probably not going to converge may, maybe towards your solution, but it'll jump around in your solution space. But the educated guess is going to get you somewhere towards your best solution because you're guiding it somehow. I think that's the, that's the, the tricky bit. The bit that needs a bit more explanation is that when you make a heuristic move in your solution, when you transform your solution, you change it a little bit, yeah, absolutely, you can have some level of surety that it will get better and it will move to um, a better place than it was. You can't necessarily know it's going to get to the best place. So that's the trade-off that you have here between the integer linear program solution where if you could code it up, which you can, and give it to a solver and the solver does return you a result, then typically that will be the best result. That will be your optimum value, the best route, the best place to stop for your charging, and, and all of that will be nicely set out for you. But if you, you're using a heuristic, you might not get the best result. You might get something that's a couple of percent worse than the best result, um, but still good. And then crucially, you'll get that much quicker than you would have done if you tried to solve it using an integer linear program solver. The heuristics I've looked at um, initially was a greedy insertion. Maybe in this case, the VRP problem, we take the next closest point and put that into our plan and then greedily take the next closest point and put that into our plan and visit what constraints there are around those. Yeah, that would work. That, that would be, I think, in the VRP problem domain, that's called a nearest neighbor heuristic. Um, and it's, it's absolutely right. It's a greedy heuristic. And... It's a very good way of generating an initial solution in a sort of guided way and then gives you a starting point for then employing some other um, heuristics to see whether you can get to a better place. The other heuristic I've come across is best insertion. Mm -hmm. So how do I use my constraints to choose what the next best point is rather than it just being a proximity issue? Yeah, so best insertion is another example where you actually start with uh, a solution to your to your route. So maybe you've got two or three vans already mapped out routes for them. Um, you know where they're stopping. And then somebody gives you a new location. Someone gives you a new drop point or a new place to deliver your parcel to that wasn't in your solution. So now the best insertion heuristic says, given all of the constraints I know I have to take into account, where can I put this in the itinerary of one of those three vans in order to make sure that I have a new optimal location for that, for that uh, parcel to be dropped? Okay, so you've considered all of the places you could put it and you choose the best one. 
So with all of our solution space, we're looking at what we call a neighborhood. And you've told me before about neighborhood search and um, specifically large neighborhood search is a potentially interesting algorithm. The nice thing with heuristics is you can, you can have a good idea that can be drawn from a, an expert maybe in the, in the field and that can be encoded up into heuristic and used to explore your solution space in a really smart way. But at the end of the day, what you end up with is solutions which can get stuck. They can get stuck in what's called local minima. So that, that's an idea where you, you've tried all of the little tweaks, you've tried all the clever uh, adjustments that maybe you've learned from the business um, or um, you, you've learned from the literature and no matter what you do, everything, everything at that point in your solution is worse. What large neighborhood search does is it, it basically expands your horizon. It says, okay, don't make small changes now, make big changes. So now what it says is you start with a, uh, a solution, one that is compliant with all of the constraints, and you deliberately destroy 10% of it, 15% of it. And then you rebuild it. Often you use a technique like best insertion to rebuild it. And in rebuilding it, having destroyed it, possibly perversely, you actually end up in, have the potential to end up in a better place. Yeah, that's the hope. To get towards your maybe global optimum. That's what you're aiming for. You, you, you always assume in these problems that there are so many local optima. So you need something to kick you out of that, to get you to a position where you can use those local techniques, those uh, heuristics to, uh, to get you to a better local optimum. And then who knows, maybe, maybe even the global optimum, but you can't rely on that. Yeah, and you probably can never really know. I mean, we're not going to calculate all solutions to the stage of getting all atoms in the universe counted. But something makes you not settle for that potentially local optimum and you make the decision to search again yes. towards a better local optimum and hopefully eventually the global optimum. So what kind of algorithms are being used now to scale that up? Because we have so much more computational resource available to us nowadays. Is it the case that if you're just given enough time, we use these algorithms or do we have to employ something else? You typically use these heuristics in combination. You don't go for just one heuristic. What you say is, I'm gonna do a little bit of large neighborhood search maybe, and then a little bit of a local search heuristic, something called 2-opt or k-opt, or one of those, which basically is a way of encoding some of these local swaps. Maybe I, I change two charging locations around, I change two parcel drops around, or I move one parcel drop from one delivery route to another delivery route. Something, something, something relatively iterative like that. That will enable us to check in reasonable time whether we could get to a close by solution, having made maybe quite a large uh, hop in solution terms using, using the large neighborhood search. So you end up sort of using these heuristics in combination. That's the art of this, I guess, is putting them together in the right combination to give you an effective end result. Although I think as you quite cleverly pointed out, you never know so where your end result is. So this is 
actually could be used as a strength for heuristics in the end, which is to say, you just keep track. You keep track of your current best solution for as long as you run this. And at any point, someone can come along and say, I've had enough, just give me what you've got. Mm-hmm. And you can always return your best solution. It might, you, maybe you haven't had an improvement in that for the last 10 minutes, but you can still return your best solution. You still remember that and you've got that and you can always hand that over um, at any point in the program's execution. Oh, of course, and not only the best, but a number of solutions because some of them may be classed as best for different people or different circumstances, which is really cool because then you're storing all these potential um, solutions and they just weren't available before or at least through a manual effort in this planning. Exactly. Typically, people, when they're planning these kinds of things, will be so delighted to have navigated their way to the first solution that solves all of their constraints that they, and probably so exhausted as well after such a big process, that they won't really feel up to searching for another one and checking to see if it's slightly better. But actually, what we can do here with a a heuristic approach like this is to say, well, here's your top 10 and maybe your absolute best, best, best solution, which shaves 25% off your driving distance, 10% off your driving time, and costs you 15% less money to execute, but maybe it has certain properties which are not quite business friendly. Well, I had an interesting example of this where we had five vans and it was always giving the most deliveries to the first three vans and then the second uh, set of vans vans four and five would have half loads they wouldn't be they wouldn't be fully loaded at all Uh, or the organization said this was no good because they were literally going right van one gets the gets a full load van two gets a full load van three gets a full load but vans four and five get half loads every day of the week that we did this and you know, James, who was driving van one, started to notice that uh, Barbara, who was driving van five, was always getting uh, a, a, an easier an easier gig, and, and that didn't go down well. So what we had to do was just look for slightly more balanced solutions. And, that, and, and heuristics would give you that opportunity to say, okay, I've got a solution which is maybe 0.1% less good cost-wise, but the number of deliveries was balanced across the vehicles nicely. And so that actually landed better. That's really cool. And I think for me now on my road trip, what I want to be sure of is given all my solutions, I'm going to pick the one that gets me back to that happy hour on time. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can share, subscribe or review online and please join us again next time.